All right, everyone. Uh, welcome to Foundations Church. If this is your first time, uh, we're glad you're here. We have visitor cards in the front of the seats there. We also have apps, uh, an app, Foundations Church SC, that you can download and fill out uh, more information that we can get from you. And then you can also listen to old sermons and read the Bible and all that kind of cool stuff. Uh, this is a little unorthodox to be seeing me up here uh, doing everything this morning. So this is a, a rare occurrence. I'll just say that. Uh, but, <laughs> Uh, today, uh, I'm going to be giving you a message out of Luke. It's basically uh, an introduction to our Wednesday night service that we have coming, so it's just to give you an idea of what we're going to be doing during that time period. Uh, but first and foremost, I want to acknowledge uh, that the children are going to stay in the service today, so let's give them a round of applause. Right? Now, the children are going to be really good. I know, right? You guys are going to be awesome. I see you. <laughs> no. No, I know you guys are going to be really good. Uh, I have a little message for you guys first. So this is specifically for the kids. And parents, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be reading out of Luke. Uh, you can read these to your kids later. So we have two different messages, two little things, two little parables of Jesus for you this morning. So we're going to start with Luke 17. Uh, and this is in verse 5. And this is a very short parable. but something that I think you guys can understand. And I think even parents need to understand too. And it kind of bleeds into what I'm going to be saying a little bit later. So it says, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Faith like a mustard seed. Do we have the picture of a mustard seed? I think there's like one on there, right? So here's what a mustard seed looks like. It's coming. Here it is, somewhere. There it is, look at that. Whoa, do you see that? You see, that's like, this is not a scale. This is my hand here. So, you know, picture that little thing. Uh, the mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds that plants into a tree, that grows into a full-blown full tree. So if you have faith like that, you can, you can tell a tree to be uprooted and, and be thrown into the sea. But there's another analogy that Jesus uses, another uh, one here in Luke 13. This is 18 through 19. And this gives you a better example of what this little mustard tree can grow into. So in uh, Luke 13, <clears throat> 18 and 19, this is Jesus talking. He said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and grew it and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nest in its branches. The kingdom of God starts out like a mustard seed and then turns into this giant tree, right? And it gets there by cultivation. It gets there by being catered to, by being slowly nurtured over time. Water, soil, the things that you grow with, right? These are the essentials of growth. And the same thing works for our spirit. We have our own versions of water and soil. It's the Bible and prayer, right? So we, we nurture our faith, our little mustard seed of faith, by reading our Bibles and by praying, right? And, and by coming before God with humble hearts, right? That's basically the basis of it. If we do that and we do it with our families, we can learn much and we can turn into one of these massive mustard trees. Picture all kinds of little animals and creatures nesting in those trees and how beautiful that would be, right? So if you want to grow into a big tree like that, you've got to start small with a mustard seed. But take that mustard seed and hold it close. And slowly over time, as you build more and more on these principles, you'll grow into that big tree. So we, uh, Sydney and I, we got to being crafty, so we made these little things for you. Let me see, here we go. It's kind of Christmas-inspired and kind of Adventish, I guess, right? 
It's a little, little tree in here, right? And some snow. So there's one of those, and you can take it home with you. And on top of it, it says Luke 13, 18 through 19. Right? So parents, when you, when you give your kids these, make sure you read this to them a couple times this week and as the season of Christmas goes. And, and just read those words of Jesus so that their mustard seed grows into a full-blown tree. Right? Um, <clears throat> so let me see if I can get an usher out here. I got these boxes of little treats. You, so if we can get an usher to hand them out to any kid that wants one. Something to keep you happy while we're, we're preaching, okay? So, like, just promise me you stay good. At the end of the service, you'll get one of the little, little things, too. Everybody good? There you go. I'll just set them right here. Yeah. Yeah, you can either eat them later or whatever your parents, de- or whatever they discern is fine. That's what, that's what we're going to do. So, how's everybody else doing this morning? Everybody good? Can I get a little bit more emphasis this morning? Thank you. All right. Awesome. Yes, we are, uh, a, you know, a charismatic church here, so it's nice to hear some voices. Uh, <laughs> every now and then, it's okay, it's all right, it's all right. Okay, so um, we're going to start in Luke chapter 9. So if you guys have your Bibles, turn to Luke 9. Um, a few weeks ago, we had an evangelist here named Tim Sutton, and he was preaching all about evangelizing, right? That's his thing, uh, and sending people out, right? And he used a scripture in Luke 9, which I'm going to take, and then I'm going to kind of expound on that a little bit. Uh, so we're calling this time well spent. And you're probably thinking, what is he talking about? We'll get to that later. Uh, but in Luke chapter 9 in particular, 9 verse 6 is where we're going to start. And we're going to start here and we're going to end here. So start, track back, come back. That's how we're going to work. Work our way into it. So um, I hope to do three things, first of all, before we get any further into this. I hope that uh, by this service you'll get an idea of what our Wednesday night service will look like. It'll be a little more expository, breaking down into Luke. Uh, And then I want to make a case for why you should be there on Wednesday, why you should be here every Sunday, why you should be here at any Bible study, why you should be reading your Bible, why you should be praying. I'm basically making a case for it for this altogether. Uh, And then most importantly, I just want to deliver a message that I I think God wants you to hear, right? Uh, So Luke 9, 6. We'll start there. Uh, So... If you're all there, I'm reading out of the ESV, it's the English Standard Version. Um, It's similar to the New King James or uh, similar to the New American Standard. So if you have one of those, it's fine. So in Luke 6, it says, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now this uh, scripture is what, what Tim Sutton used a few weeks ago, and he was talking about how you have the ability to go preach the gospel and have healing. You can, you can do healing. You have to pray for healing. You can give healing. You can do those things, right? You've been given that power and that authority from Jesus. Yes. So he used this portion, but we're going to read a little further up. So let's start at the beginning of 9 and make our way down here, just to kind of understand who he's talking to, why he's saying this, why, why the apostles are going out. So we're going to start with Jesus sending them out. So uh, Jesus here in verse 9, 9 verse 1 says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So uh, the context is key here. First, Jesus is talking to 12. He's talking to the 12 
disciples that are now apostles, right? These 12 are his, his closest workers. They're like here with him all the time, walking around, his closest students, basically. He's talking to the 12, and he's sending them out to do his, his message to spread the gospel. But not only that, he's telling them and he's giving them very specific instructions. So first of all, he gives them power and authority. So he grants them power and authority Amen. over demons and to cure diseases. But then... He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom first and then to heal. And the key part here, and this is the one thing that always stands out to me because it seems kind of off. It seems like, why would he he, he say these things? He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whatever they do not receive you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. Now, why would Jesus send his apostles out unequipped, right? That's the question of the day. Why would he send them out without anything? Think of it from a different perspective. How many times have you left your house to go on a trip, right? And you didn't have gas in your car, you didn't have plane tickets, or you didn't have money in the bank, or clothes, or anything. You were just, no food, nothing. You were just like, I'm going to go by faith. I'm just going to go out, and God is, everything's going to be provided for how many times have I want to see anyone in this room who has done that? Exactly, right? The most jarring part of this is that at the end, he's, he's told this, and there is no resistance. None of them have said, no, we're not going to do that. They just depart. And they went into the villages without tunics and without money and without food, and without provisions, because they had this thing called faith, right? They had this thing called faith. And they believed that what Jesus was telling them was enough to provide them and carry them forward. So I was like thinking to myself, how did the, the apostles get to this point where they, their faith was strong enough that they didn't doubt God? Because even later on, they doubt God, right? Like Peter doubts, and you've got like all, all accounts of people having doubts. And so you have to understand how the apostles came about, right? So when we start tracking back in the Bible and we see the the introduction of the apostles, we start learning more about their lives and learning more about how Jesus has cultivated this movement and has been teaching them all along so that they are prepared for this experiment, if you will. And we know this is an experiment because he does it again in chapter 10, but this time he sends out 72 disciples, right? So the first, first experiment is the 12. He's got the 12 apostles. These are his closest. And then in, verse, in chapter 10, he sends out 72 more and these guys, he sends out two by two because they're disciples, not apostles. And we'll find out a little more about that in a second. So if we want to find out more, let's go to Luke 5. And we're going to start there. We're going to figure out who these disciples are, why they have such strong faith, why they can go out and do these things, and why God is also telling us to do this too. So an interesting thing, a uh, historical perspective as you're flipping through about the book of Luke is Luke is written by uh, St. Luke, who is not an apostle, but was a physician that was close in proximity to the apostle Paul. Uh, so he basically went and collected all these Christian stories uh, of Jesus that were being told and put them together as like a, the mega mix, right? And because he was a physician, he had quite a bit of uh, a degree, like a degree, I guess, at that time. So he was very studious. So his literature, the way it's written, is very well done, as opposed to some of the rough edges of Matthew, Mark, and John. 
Uh, so Luke has some of the most detailed accounts because he treated it like a documentarian. So he went around and like fact, he was like basically like a fact checker. Like he would find this person, this person, and verify it, and then put it all together into a piece. And uh, Luke is the only book of the Gospels that has a sequel, which is the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke, uh, which we'll get to another time. Uh, but here we go. So we're in Luke 5, and we're going to read uh, 1 through 11. And this is uh, where Jesus calls the first disciples. So, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing but your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their parents and the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were the partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So we see a few things here, right? Uh, Simon is the one who has the most interaction with Jesus in this particular case. Jesus gets on a boat. These guys have been out all night. And Jesus says, cast your nets again. Simon probably is like thinking, right? Like, why would, I, why would I do that? We didn't catch anything. He even says we didn't catch anything. But he says, but your word, I will let down the nets. So we're already seeing there's something different with Simon in particular uh, from most people. If Jesus, like if I didn't know Jesus and he just came into town and I, this is my first interaction with him and he was like, put down your nets after I've been out all night, I probably would be like, who is this guy, right? Why, why would I go fishing? But Simon realized there was some power in his word, right? So he said, by your word, I will let down my nets. And of course, they caught a bunch of fish, right? So then Jesus pulls that into fruition. He pulls it all together. And so they catch the fish, and then he, he falls on his knees and says that I am a sinner, right? And he's already approaching Jesus the proper way. He's saying, I'm a sinner. I, I don't deserve to be in your presence. He's, proper, he's approaching him from humbleness. And this is where Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So he's basically telling him, look, your, your fishing days are over. You're going to be walking out here with, with me. And so when they got on to dry land, they left everything and followed him behind. They left everything and followed him. And that's key. These people, I don't know what kind of lives they had outside of fishing. They probably had families. They probably had friends. They probably had, obviously, they had a business. And they just decided right then and there, they were just going to leave it. They were just going to go by faith. They're saying, I'm just going to go out with Jesus, and I, I am not going to do anything else. I'm just going to go be a disciple with this guy. And so from the beginning, this group of people noticed that his word was powerful, and they were expounding on faith. They were going on faith. That was the key. So from the beginning, faith like a mustard seed, right? Here it is. It's a mustard seed. Small little thing. And it's slowly being cultivated through the next four chapters. So as we go along, here's just a breakdown of events that happens in chapter 5, right? Because there's too many to count. Uh, in 5, 12 through 16, 
uh, Jesus heals leprosy and then teaches them about prayer. In 5.17 through 26, he forgives sins, which was a, a, a very, only God can forgive sins. Jesus heals sins, caused quite a stir amongst the Pharisees, uh, but he still did it. He was teaching them a lesson. He healed and he teaches. In 5.27 through 39, he evangelizes and teaches more. In 6, 1 through 5, he corrects the Pharisees on a misunderstanding of the laws. So Jesus now is the expert in the laws, and he's teaching them more. And then 6, 1, 6 through 11, he heals and teaches again. So just in that chapter alone, they've, got, they've seen healings, they've seen teachings, they've learned about prayer, they've learned about the law. These people are getting an education, essentially, right? So they're not just following Jesus around and just letting him do all the works. They're witnessing everything, and they're seeing what he's doing, and they're picking up on it. So uh, here we go. We're going go to go to chapter 6, and this is where things start to get a little interesting. So uh, in chapter 6, again, uh, he heals and teaches again. We see from 6 to 6.11, he heals a man with a withered hand. And then in 6.12 through 16, it says, in these days he went to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. This is Jesus that we're talking about. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose for them twelve who he named apostles. And kids, here's your chance to remember this. I'm going to list them off, okay? So Simon, who was named Peter, that's one. Andrew, his brother. James and John and Philip. Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus. Simon, who was called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, Judas Iscariot, who had become a traitor. There you go. There's your 12, right? The, the, the originals, right? And so what we see here is Jesus went to the mountain to pray. He stayed there all night, continuously praying, asking God for assistance in picking the apostles. He's no longer, this is no longer the disciples we're talking about. These are apostles. These are the select 12 that will be the basis and the foundation for our Christian church as we go forward. Like, these are the people that we are elevating a little bit above. So, what is an apostle and what is a disciple? An apostle is a messenger and an ambassador. Uh, it's someone who champions a critical reform movement belief or cause. A disciple is a follower and student of a mentor, teacher, or of any wise person. So, these people started out as students, and while they're still students, they have been elevated to apostles, uh, apostleship. And in doing so, they are the ambassadors, they're the ones who get sent out first. So think of it in a school term, right? If you go to college, you would be like a disciple, like four years in college, that would be your school education. And then if you choose to go to like a master's program, or if you do like an internship or something, that would kind of be like an apostle, like a master's or a doctorate. They have you working a little bit, right? You're not just doing education, you're now actually doing other things too. And so the apostles are a key, have a key role within Jesus' ministry. So they get elevated from that discipleship into the apostleship. And again, there are others who follow Jesus around. Like it says in chapter 10, there's at least 72 more who are kind of in close proximity that he sends out. So these 12, once again, are the ones who are now apostles. So he's <laughs> elevating them and he's training them a little bit deeper than he is the rest. So Let's list them off again one more time. Simon, named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Uh, and you have to also understand that Jesus knew that from the beginning that Judas would become a traitor, but he needed him, right? He was an integral part. You have to have somebody close to you to, to be that deceptive. Uh, so we have our 12, and they are now moving on. 
So here's, here's a breakdown again. We're just going to kind of keep going through and weaving in and out of these messages here. So in 6, we're going to continue a little further. In 6, 17 through 49, uh, in Luke, this is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, so let's actually read some of this. I think this is, this is good. This is like the key portion of Jesus' message. This is what he wants you to learn here. So he came down to them, and this is right after he's picked the 12, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So here we go, Jesus, he's coming to deliver a message. People are here with diseases. He's healing them. The apostles are with him. They're following him around. They're getting that that education of how Jesus does it. They're watching firsthand, right? Like, we have the Bible as a reference. These dudes had literally Jesus in front of them. So they had this permanent attachment to him. So here is the Beatitudes. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so the fathers do to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when you people seek well of you, for their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So, and there's more to this, but this is the, the key of Jesus' message. This trickles into everything, right? How do we treat others? And that emulates further down as he goes along with, with the apostles. How does, how does Jesus treat others? We all, we, if you remember in the 90s, there was, a, there was a time where WWJD was like a cool thing, right? Like, what would Jesus do? And it was basically, it had stemmed from this movement that was actually 100 years old. It was from the 1890s called the Social Gospel, where they were trying to figure out what Jesus would do in social situations. How would he help the poor? How would he help the sick? How would he help the needy? What would he do? Uh, And when you look at the Beatitudes or when you look at Matthew 25, for instance, you see what he would do. He tells you this. And this, this and along with Matthew, the the account correlates, right? So this is the, the core gospel that he's teaching to these guys. How do you treat everyone? Or let's take it a little this way. The least of these you are doing for me. So the person you like the least, how you treat them is how you treat Jesus, right? So that becomes the core of their doctrine. And going forward, we'll see more and more of all these things. So I'm going to break down some more of, of 6 and 7. And 7, 1 through 10. And these, like I said, if you just read Luke 5 through 9, you will see so many accounts of miracles and of things. So if you're going through some struggles in your life and you really need some sort of breakthrough, just read these because there's tons in here. Since 7, 1 through 10, Jesus heals the servant of the centurion. Uh, and actually, we're going to read this one, because this one's pretty good. So 7, 1 through 10. And I'll give you a minute. And it said, uh, after he had finished 
all his sayings in the hearing of the people. He entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with him. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does that. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This man knew that, like, kind of like Simon in the beginning, knew the word, just the word, of Jesus was so powerful that he could heal his servant, right? The word in and of itself. And he understood. He was kind of like, in a way, it's an emulation of Jesus. Jesus has apostles. He sends them out. They go and they do. They come and they go. This man understood how the inner workings of how Jesus' ministry worked. And just by saying, here's the word. Just say the word and he'll be healed. We see that exponential faith that it takes for that kind of thing. And this is exactly what Jesus wants the apostles to see. Like, he's not only creating these healings, he's also showing them that faith is what is essentially the gateway into the healing. Without faith, there is no healing. So he's, he's cultivating, again, this lesson centered around faith. If you have faith, your faith will make you whole. Your faith will heal. Your faith can do these other things. And the person that you're praying for has to have these faith, too. So it's an, a, a cultivation. So let's keep going a little bit. At 17, 18 through 30, Jesus uh, witnesses to John's disciples and teaches on water baptism. In 36 through 50, he dines with a Pharisee and discusses the humbleness of the sinning woman. Uh, and in verse 48, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So here it is, Jesus again is forgiving sins. This is something that Pharisees do not like, right? They think only God can can forgive sins, and they're failing to see that God is in the room, right? That's their biggest problem. They're so stuck to the law that they don't even see that God is present. So here he is. He's forgiving sins, right, which he only has the ability to do, but he is forgiving them, and it's another lesson in faith. It's this lesson of this woman who's come forward with faith, and she knows that her faith will make her whole. In 8, 1 through 5, Jesus goes to every city and village preaching with the 12 apostles and the others, right? So we have all the other ragtag crew that's following him around. Uh, in 8, 14, 4 through 18, uh, we have a parable of seeds, and that's where he's talking about the seed will be thrown, right? And what ground it lands on uh, is basically how it will grow, right? And, and, and that's another lesson in faith. Uh, in 22 through 25, he rebukes a storm and quiets the waves. He says to them, where is your faith? And they are afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water to obey him? Another lesson in faith. Jesus is saying, where is your faith? He's like, I was sleeping below the ship, and if you had faith like a mustard seed, I wouldn't have to wake up right now, <laughs> right? He's telling them, look, guys, like, there's 12 of you. Between the 12 of you, you guys could have, we could have stopped this, right? Like, we could have stopped this whole wave account, but instead, here I am, be gone, right? So in 26 through 36, he cast out the legion, 
and heals a demon-possessed man. And then 40 and 56, he resurrects Jairus' daughter. He facilitates the healing of a woman with the issue of blood. So let's read this. So 8, 40 through 56. These are two really great accounts uh, of faith and going from there. So when you get there, 40 through 56 is where we're going to go. So now, uh, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only a daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had been had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And there was a woman, oh, sorry, who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed anymore. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied, Peter, here comes Peter, saying, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out for me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Again, her faith. Right? It's not Jesus' faith. It's her faith. <laughs> right? Like Jesus is the, the person who is facilitating the healing, but it is her faith that made her well. So while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James. So here we go. We've got three apostles here. And the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They're doubting right here. <laughs> They're all laughing because to them, she appears dead. Knowing that she was dead, but taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he changed, charged them to tell no one what had happened. So here he is. Faith, again, has healed and resurrected. We have a healing and a resurrection. And actually, we've had two resurrections in here. So why uh, the, the apostles later on were doubtful of him being able to be resurrected himself is incredible to me because he clearly could resurrect. He knew like that was something he was doing. He's teaching them. He's like, look, this is how things are going to be. So now we're back here at chapter 9. And let's read this again together because it kind of brings a little more context into things. So, and he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So there you go. This is five chapters. So it wasn't just a sudden thing. They weren't just ready and they weren't prepared to just suddenly go out. And we're kind of in the same way. We're, we are disciples, right? Like we're supposed to be disciples. So we're supposed to be living in that world of cultivation and learning from God and learning from the Bible. And we may not all be ready to launch like he sent them out. But the way we do that is by 
reading the Word of God and by praying and learning and deep dives. So when we look at this thing that says time well spent, the question is, how do you spend your time? You know, what do you spend your time doing? Uh, I, there's a, a scripture uh, in Matthew 28. It's the very end. It's the last thing that, that Jesus says as he, before he's ascended into heaven, right? And this is what he's telling to his disciples. It's called the Great Commission, Amen. right? Uh, and, and so we have the 11 disciples, Judas is out at this point, uh, went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still doubt it, right? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is saying here, very, very bluntly, this is his last command before he goes out, go into the nations and create disciples. He's not saying go make Christians, right? Like, it's very easy to just confess with our mouth that we, Jesus is Lord, and then just go on living our life like nothing else has happened. He is calling us to be disciples, and disciples devoted their life like they did with, with, uh, in Luke and Simon when he gave up everything that he had, literally everything. There's another parable of a rich man, and he talks about you know, how it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the needle of an eye, or an eye of a needle, right? And that's not just specifically talking about riches. That's just talking about people who fill their time and their things with too much stuff, right? We're a consumerist society, so we fill our times with things and stuff, and we spend a lot of time on other things, and we don't devote enough to this. And because of that, we're not properly equipped. What if someone wants to come to you and you had the opportunity to actually be a disciple to them? Would you be able to say anything? Would you be able to recite any of this? I'll be honest, <laughs> I've, I've struggled with this myself. You know, like This is something that I have struggled with drastically. So when I look at the, the commission there, and I'm being sent out to make more disciples, I have to like think, well, I gotta like give up some things to study more so that I'm properly equipped to be there. Now we know that Jesus has saved us by grace and grace alone, and so it doesn't really matter uh, how far along we are in the journey uh, that we're still saved, but at the same time, uh, he did say that we were supposed to make disciples. So the only way we can make them is if we are them, right? <laughs> like a, ch a chicken can't lay an egg unless it's a chicken, and only a cow can make milk. That kind of milk, you know. What I mean, my point is, is you can't make something if you are not that something. So we have to be disciples. So we have to constantly cultivate and constantly learn, constantly pray, and come into that moment in time to where we are ready. Uh, so let's go to Acts two, and this will be my last scripture point for this, and then we'll end on that. So Acts is essentially the sequel to Luke, and if you know Luke, it ends with the ascension. Acts begins with the ascension. It's written that way to where it bridges the gap. So Acts 2, what happens in Acts 2 is, is the church comes together and they're, they're suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come. It comes down on tongues of fire and they're speaking different tongues. They're able to, someone is interpreting and hearing this language. And then we have this message from Peter that just is fire, right? And everybody's like, yes, that's great. But then after that, there's this little portion it's the very end of chapter 2, and it starts at verse 42. And so, when, when I think about church, this is what I think about. This is how I come back to it constantly. Are we doing these few things? And if we are, then 
we're kind of on the right path. So it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. So this group of people has come together, right? This is Jesus has left, and they're like, now what? What do we do? And so they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles. So the 12 that Jesus elected and decided these are the ones that I'm going to springboard, they have devoted themselves to their teachings and to fellowship and to breaking bread and to praying, right? This is what they're going to do. Whether they do it at home or whether they do it in a synagogue, it doesn't matter. That is what they're going to spend their time doing. And so that is what we are to do as disciples, to spend our time devoted to God, spend our time devoted to the apostles' teachings. We have the luxury of having a Bible that didn't exist in the, in the early church, right? So we have the luxury of that. And so it's really no excuse at this point. So we are to come together, have fellowship, break bread, do prayers, spend devotional time with our Bibles and prayers with God every morning. And that is what we are instructed to do. And that is what God considers time well spent, right? So now I realize we have jobs, we have things that we have to do. There are things in our life that we have to fill with other parts of time. But the reality is sometimes there's little things that get in the way that we can carve out and say, okay, I can take that out and I can make more time for God. So here's um, two little infographics. I like infographics because I'm a nerd. Uh, this first one is called uh, 30 Minutes Per Day. I think we have it, you have it on there, right? Guys? Yeah, here we go. Okay, so this, this, this company called Crossway, they're an organization, a Christian organization. They studied 11,000 people and they asked them what they spent more than 30 minutes on every day. So we have, look here, 70% of people spend more than 30 minutes on emails. Uh, TV, 59%, books, 55%, housework, 55%, hobbies, 42%, podcasts, 32%, Facebook, 28%, YouTube, 26%, Instagram, 11%. This might be more of the millennial generation's problem. I mean, I'll admit, I was like that. Uh, Twitter, 6%. And so these are, these numbers, this is what people spend more than 30 minutes doing outside of their work, outside of their vocation. This is extracurricular activities. So then over here on the side, it says, how much could you read spending 30 minutes with your Bible every day? Uh, in one day, you could read the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, in two days, you could read the book of Romans. Uh, down here, in 30 days, you could, you could read basically the, the, the core foundation of the Old Testament. And in 40, you could read the entire New Testament, including the, the letters of Paul and Revelation and all that. The whole Bible could be read in 160 days. You could finish it in, in almost in little, little under a year, half a year, right? And then we have one more. This is, this is good, too. Let's go to the next one. I think one more graphic. There we go. Here we go. Reading the Testaments of the Bible. So the Old Testament, they did an average of people's reading abilities. It takes 56 hours and 44 minutes to read in its entirety. Uh, but you can see here this little thing. You can put yourself on a plan, right? Here, here we go, right? In a week, you could, if you wanted to read it in a week, you'd have to spend eight hours and six minutes a day. But let's say you had a, a little less like, adventurous goal. Uh, well, a year, nine minutes a day. Hey, look at that. You can read the Old Testament in nine minutes a day in a year. How crazy is that? 
And if I'm looking at that correctly, a lot of us can cut out email, right? Like, <laughs> how much of our emails is just us swiping left to delete, delete, delete? Black Friday deals, deleted, you know? Like, it just keeps going. So <laughs> the way I look at this is, I think we just need to find more time, right? Like, we have time. We just need to carve out the proper time for our devotion. So we can be like that Acts 2 church, right? Well, the key part of the Acts 2 church is at the very end, it tells you what they did, right? It tells you that they broke bread. It tells you that they pray. It tells you that they, they dedicated their lives to, to the teachings. But it says right here, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God added to their number. They weren't even doing it. They were just doing what they were told. They were just being devout. They were just being a devout life, and God, by nature, was just drawing more people in. They didn't even have to go out. You know what I mean? Like, they're just, they're just doing their thing, and because they're doing their thing, it, their influence around them is so much greater that it just draws more people in. So when I think about that, and when I look at Luke, and I look at Acts, and, and I look at those things, I feel like we can be those disciples. We can be those people who, who see healings and see all those things that, that Jesus has commanded for us to do. But in order for us to be there, we have to really devote ourselves to it. You can't go out and expect healing to happen with you know, half of a mustard seed of faith. You've got to have the whole thing. <laughs> so the only way we can do this is by building on that with the Word. So we take the Bible and we just read it and pray on it and expound on it and study it and learn it. And so when we go on Wednesday nights, we'll be going through Luke specifically. And we won't be covering much of the apostles or disciples. We'll be talking more about Jesus' life. We'll be talking about you know, the prophecies that were fulfilled by his birth, right? And then his life and his miracles and his teachings and then his death, uh, his ascension into hell, his ascension into heaven, the resurrection, all that. Those are the things that we'll be covering. And we'll be taking it slow over four weeks so that we really have a good understanding for it. So I realize, once again, that that, that is a time thing. So I urge you, if you have an hour to an hour and a half on a Wednesday night, to come, make time. Just come out. Just read some more of the Bible. We'll learn it together. We'll go through this process together. And then make time for Sundays. And if you can make time for a Bible study, I encourage you to do that too. Or if there's a small group or something that you, you can do, or maybe even just meet with a friend. Like if you get, if it takes you 30 minutes a day to go get coffee at Starbucks, maybe ask a friend if they want to come with you, and then you guys can read the Bible together, right? Be a witness. It's great. So that, that is pretty much my, my, my point here this morning. As we go through Luke, if we want to be that church that sees the healings and sees signs and wonders and miracles, then we have to devote ourselves to these things and spend more time well spent, right? So let us pray, and then, uh, then we'll, we're going to sing one more song together uh, because it's always good as saints to come together and sing uh, for the glory of God. So if you will, just bow your heads this morning. Dear Lord, we just give you thanks and glory this morning, and we just give you thanks for your, your word. We just pray that we will take it in as you intended for us, and, and that you will restore our hearts to have more of a devout life for you. We just pray that as we go forth in our weeks, and, and, and especially the season of Christmas and Advent, that we will be the person that you need us to be to witness to our families. And we just pray that you'll constantly tug on our heart to return to you and to be like that Acts church where we can come back to you and really see the presence of the Holy Spirit in our, in our lives. So we just want to return to you, Lord, in devoutness and just give everything we have and all thanks to you because you are good and we love you.